15 this morning. I mentioned this earlier, but on the backside of your worship guide, there's a place to follow along with our sermon this morning. You can see that we'll be in 1 Kings 18 and some points to fill in the blanks along the way, just a way to help you engage with our study. We're looking at the power of prayer. This past week was an election and uh, the the midterm elections, as we call it, and it was an important election, as uh, as all elections are, but particularly as midterm elections are, because typically a midterm is a, a point where you see a swing. You know, there's it's not uncommon, and even in this midterm election, we saw a swing in the House with a shifting of control from Republican to Democratic control. And thinking in all of that and processing and reading things as you probably were in the follow-up to that and, and just thinking about uh, where we are as a nation and how you can pray moving forward and those things, I came upon some research conducted by a group that's known as the Pew Research Group. And Pew, like the pew that you're sitting in this morning, and Pew Research Group, uh, are, they, they do a lot of um, different research, but a, a lot of it centers around the role of Christianity and, and particularly what we would consider to be evangelical Christianity. And one of the, one of the, the pieces of research, one of the, the surveys that they conducted as an exit poll for those who had voted, saw that less than 50%, in fact, according to their, the Pew Research, 47% of people voting in this last election cycle, midterm election cycle, identified as Protestant Christians. That was down from 2006, for example, when in uh, a little over uh, 10 years ago in that midterm election, 55% of those who voted in the midterm election identified as, uh, as, as Protestant Christian. Why is that significant? Well, I think, uh, I think that speaks to maybe perhaps what many of us feel, and that is that it seems as though increasingly in America today that there is a rise of those who have no, uh, no, no religious affiliation. This same research by the Pew Research Group found that over that same period of time, the numbers of those who voted who identified as non-religious, having no religious affiliation, grew from 11% to, to 17% of those who voted in this last election cycle. And, and increasingly, Christians are writing about and blogging and talking openly about the fact that it feels like, like our numbers are shrinking. And, and so what do we do with that? How, do, how are we to understand how we move forward in light of that? How are we to interpret uh, the, the, the stance that we have, the role that we have as Christians? There's a lot to be said about that. And, and I certainly won't try to say everything that could be said or that perhaps maybe even needs to be said about that here and this morning. But one piece in particular that I do want to focus on is something that I first heard uh, about five years ago that these words, or, or I heard this idea phrased this way about five years ago by a gentleman whose name is Russell Moore. Russell Moore is now the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, which is one of our entities as Southern Baptists, one of our standing groups. They're a group that advocate for the interests of Southern Baptists 
in, in the culture at large in a political way, but also in just in trying to give voice to the role of Christians in our culture today. And Russell Moore, at his inauguration for the ERLC, said in 2013 that as Christians, we need to stop thinking in terms of... My microphone just went out, obviously, as you can tell, so that may mean my battery's going bad. If it does, we'll just... I'll stay close to the pulpit here and we'll, we'll make it. Uh, it, may, it, it, may, it may mean that we need to stop thinking of ourselves as a moral majority and start thinking instead, and this is the way he phrased this that was unique, as a prophetic minority. And what he meant by that, this is what, I, this is what he meant by that. Uh, by the way, you can go and you can read a transcript of his entire inaugural speech on his blog. It's just russellmore.com if you're interested in checking that out. Or the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, ERLC. Uh, you can Google that and you can, you can find some of this as well. But he, what he meant by saying that we should think of ourselves as the prophetic minority is just that as Christians, we need to recognize that all the signs, all the trends in our culture are pointing to the lessening of Christian influence and the growing of a more secular or non-religious, certainly non-Christian influence. And as Christians, we need to understand that we have a role to play in this cultural landscape like that of a prophet. Think about what was the role of a prophet, particularly in the Old Testament. We look at the Old Testament, we study the work of prophets. The work of a prophet was to speak the word of God, to speak the word of truth, and to try to win the hearts of people, to turn the hearts of people. And the point of what Dr. Moore was saying is that as Christians, we need to understand the, the role that we have to play as a people of God, speaking the word of truth, standing for what is right, even if it seems like increasingly there are fewer and fewer of us taking that stand. We need to speak the word of truth, stand for what is right, and try to do it in such a way that we might win the hearts of people and turn them back toward God. And when you think of it in that manner, when you think of it in that way, I think really he's right. We do have a, a, a role to play. We do have a sort of a, a prophetic role to play. And oftentimes when we think of prophecy today, we tend to think of prophecy as it relates to the future. So a word that is spoken today, something that is said, something that is predicted speaks about things that will happen in the future. And, and that is, I mean, particularly when we study New Testament prophecy or end times prophecy, that certainly is an, an applicable understanding of prophecy, but it's not limited just to talking about the end times. So when we talk about having the role of a prophet today, it doesn't mean that, we're, that it's doom and gloom. It doesn't mean that we're saying, oh, we better turn or we're going to burn, you know, that, that we've got to go back or God's going to wipe us out. Instead, what it means is that we, we need to speak the word of truth boldly, clearly, with conviction, and that we need to do that in a way that we're trying to win the hearts of people or win and turn people back toward God. It's not so much about speaking the word in condemnation as it is about speaking a word of reconciliation and redemption in Christ. And in that sense, we have a role to play as Christians, as believers, in, in being sort of like modern-day prophets, in a sense, if I can use that word really, really broadly, really loosely. We are prophets who speak the word of truth, who stand on the word of truth, and who try to win the heart's people. If I were to ask you the question, who is the greatest prophet in the Old Testament? Who would you say? You might say Isaiah. Maybe that's because the book of Isaiah is the biggest 
prophetic book in the Old Testament. You might say somebody like Jeremiah, because Jeremiah was this radical prophet who, who, uh, who did all of these incredible signs and wonders. But I would contend, and I would argue, that the greatest prophet in the Old Testament is not one of the writing prophets, meaning he's not one that wrote a book, but rather one who had a, a powerful ministry nonetheless, was the prophet Elijah. And this morning we're going to look at a story involving the prophet Elijah as we're studying the power of prayer. And I want us to see particularly the role that prayer played in this incredible event that uh, that transpired on top of Mount Carmel. Now, you're going to be familiar probably with the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. If you've grown up in the church at all, you've heard this story before, you, you, you know a little bit of the bits and pieces about it. But I want us to focus specifically this morning on the role of prayer and what happened in the face-off between the prophets of Baal and Elijah, the prophet of God, atop Mount Carmel. And so we're going to study that in 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, I need to give you a little bit of the backstory because we're going to pick up in verse 36, but verse 36 is really just the climax. That's where things are really like, that's, that's where the tipping point, where things are really good and good. But there's a lot of events that led up to 1 Kings chapter 18, 36. So before we get to verse 36 in a minute, let me give you the backstory. In 1 Kings chapter 17, you see that Elijah enters the scene. Elijah the Tishbite. And Elijah is, is of Gilead. So he's from the city of, of Tishba, and, and that's in the northern part, the east, east of the Jordan, in the northern part of uh, Israel, in one of the northern, kingdom, uh, the northern tribes in the northern part of the kingdom. And Elijah comes on the scene as this great prophet, and his first great prophecy was to prophesy to the king that there would be no rain in all of the land until he, Elijah, prayed for rain. So in, Elijah, in Elijah's lifetime, he does a lot of great things. But the first great miracle, the first great prophetic thing that he does is he prophesies to the king that God will not send rain until I pray for rain. You read about that in 1 Kings chapter 17. Well, we know that Ahab was a wicked king. And even worse than Ahab was his wife, Jezebel, who was a wicked woman. Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Sidon. Now, Sidon was in the, the land of Phoenicia. It's kind of northwest. North, if you think of Israel or if you look on a map of Israel in the back of your Bible, you look to the northwest. We often think of the towns of Tyre and Sidon because those are referenced together frequently in the New Testament. Or They're not really towns. They're more of regions of, of Tyre and Sidon. Northwest of Galilee. And Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Sidon. And she was married to Ahab, king of Israel, and it was, a, it was an alliance between these two nations. It was a political alliance between these peoples. Jezebel was not a God-fearing woman, and she brought the outside influence, this pagan, idolatrous influence into the children of Israel. And in time, she, not only did she bring the influence of her gods and, and her, her people, but she led the children of Israel away. Now, it doesn't help that they were already headed in that trajectory anyway. Israel already had rejected God's authority and turned their backs on God in many ways. Even just the alliance between Ahab and Jezebel, the marriage between them, even that in and of itself was proof that Israel was not honoring God. The king was not honoring God, not doing as he was supposed to do. But what we see in the early part of 1 Kings chapter 18 
It's that Jezebel wanted to wipe out the prophets of Yahweh, the prophets of God. And so she was on a mission to do that. And there's a, a character in the story whose name is Obadiah. He was the right-hand man of King Ahab. Obadiah took a hundred prophets of Yahweh and hid them in two groups of 50 in caves away from Jezebel. And he provided food and water for them to, to spare their lives. Well, as all of this is happening, Elijah is a wanted man. He is, he is public enemy number one for King Ahab because there was severe famine and drought in the land. In the midst of all of this, there was severe famine, severe drought. Remember, Elijah prophesied as the word of the Lord came to him that there would be no rain until he prayed for rain. Now, why is that? Have you ever, maybe you've heard all of that, but have you ever stopped to think about why? Why would God do that? Why would God cause his own people to suffer? Well, here's the reason behind that. Jezebel, even her name, Jezebel, the, the bell in that is a reference to Baal. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, you'll see the word B-A-A-L. And you think, what is that? What is, a, what is a Baal? A Baal, well, Baal is a god. It was a Canaanite god. And it was the god of the, the rain or of fertility. And so the, the understanding was that Baal was the god who would make rain fall to the ground, the thunder god or the storm god, and that that in turn would provide for the earth to grow things. He was the god of fertility, the god of rains and the storms. Well, don't you see why God told Elijah to prophesy that there would be no rain? The people were worshiping Baal. And listen, the worship of Baal was pretty, pretty wicked even by today's standards. A, a big part of the worship of Baal is they would construct these temples, and these temples also often had what was called an Asherah, and Asherah was, Asherah was the wife of Baal, and so it was like a, a, a stone column or sometimes a wooden column that they would build, and they called it an Asherah pole, and at these temples of Baal, at the foot of the Asherah pole, people would come to worship. They would come, and they would literally, they would have sex with temple prostitutes, and that was seen as that that was seen as an act of worship that was supposed to uh, make the, the gods procreate and send rains to the earth. And I mean, it was, even by today's standards, this is, this, is pretty, this is pretty wild and pretty wicked stuff, right? And in all of this, the hearts of the people turned from God, turned from his ways, turned from honoring him, turned from walking in his way of truth and obeying his law and following the commandments. And so they were looking to Baal to provide. They were looking to Baal and praising Baal when it would rain. And so God says, well, that's the end of that. It's not going to rain. If you guys think Baal did this, then I'll just step back and we'll let Baal provide some rain for you, right? And it didn't happen for three years. And so there was severe drought, severe famine in the land. People began to die. There was scarcity of food. And, and it was a really serious situation. And not only was it serious for people who were hurting and feeling the plight of all of this, but it was really a scary time for Elijah because Elijah was seen as responsible for all of this. Because Elijah said, it's not going to rain until I pray for rain. And so what needed to happen? Well, in King Ahab's mind, we need to catch Elijah and we need to torture this guy until he prays for rain so that it'll rain and the famine will end. And so Elijah was a wanted man, public enemy number one. Well, finally, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and says, Elijah, it's time. 
get yourself ready. You're going to appear before Ahab. You're going to pray, and there's going to be rain in the land. And so Elijah goes to Obadiah, and he says to Obadiah, I want you to go and tell your king, King Ahab, that I'm going to come see him, and that, I, that, that he and I have some, we have some business to handle. That's not exactly how he worded it. You can read in 1 Kings 18. I'm using the, the rough Michael translation there, but that's essentially what he said. Ahab, we've got some business to handle. And so Obadiah says to Elijah, wait a minute, what are you doing? Why involve me in all of this? You're, you're just going to make me lose my life because as sure as I appear before King Ahab and say, you're coming, you're not going to show up. The spirit of the Lord's going to carry you off to who knows where. And then Ahab's going to blame me and he's going to put me to death. And Elijah says, no, this day I will appear before Ahab. Well, he does. That very same day he appeared before Ahab. And Elijah says to Ahab, I want you to gather all the priests of Baal and all the priests of Asherah, and I want you to meet me on top of Mount Carmel, and we'll see whose God is truly God. Mount Carmel is located in the north, again, in the, in the, in the area around Galilee. And Carmel, or Carmel, as it would have been known in the Hebrew language, meant the garden mountain. This was a mountain that was known for its lush vegetation. And so they meet atop this mountain, this, this lush green, normally at least, mountain that's probably now dry and showing the signs of the, all of the, the drought and the famine that were happening in the land. And there atop the mountain, Elijah issues a challenge. 450 prophets of Baal, another 400 prophets of Asherah. And he says to them, I want you to build an, a temple, I mean, rather an altar to your gods. And I want you to pray for your gods to send fire and consume your sacrifice. And if your God is real, then he'll do that. And I will build a, an altar to my God. And I will pray for God to consume that altar as well and that sacrifice and we'll see whose God is really God. So this is where the story picks up in 1 Kings 18. They, they do this. They construct the altar and it says that all day from morning until noon the prophets of Baal cried out to Baal that he would send fire to consume the sacrifice that they had laid on top of the altar. And Elijah, about noon, begins to mock them. He says, maybe you should scream a little bit louder. Maybe Baal's asleep. Maybe he's, maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's on a trip somewhere. Maybe he's gone on a journey. And so the prophets begin to do that. They begin to cry out even louder. Their custom was to cut themselves. And so they begin to cut themselves according to their customs. And, and it was bloodletting. And, and they would do all of this dancing and hysteria, trying to get Baal to send fire to consume the sacrifice. And finally, they, they give up. They relent. And here's Elijah, one against many. And Elijah constructs an altar of his own. But not only does Elijah construct an altar. Remember, there's a great famine in the land. There was drought. That water was a scarce resource at this point. And Elijah commanded that they would, that three different times that they would soak the altar in water. Now you can imagine that it was enough that it was enough that Elijah was, was pretty cocky and kind of arrogant and thinking, you know, and, and calling for all of this. It was enough that Elijah is mocking the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Asherah. 
But on top of that, now he takes a scarce resource like water and he's just pouring it out on the ground, just mocking them, right? Just making fun of of them in the situation. But really what he's doing is he's preparing for this incredible demonstration of God's power. And then in 1 Kings 18, verse 36, now we have the point in the story where we're going to pick up where Elijah prays to God. Remember I told you, what was the role of a prophet? The role of a prophet was to speak the word of truth and to call hearts to repentance, to try to turn the hearts of people to God. You'll see both of those things in Elijah's prayer here in 1 Kings chapter 18. And so I want us to look at his public prayer. That's the first thing that we're going to see here. Elijah's public prayer. The prayer that he prayed in front of the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Asherah, in front of everyone, for everyone to see in 1 Kings 18. And then we're going to look at Elijah's private prayer, which was the prayer that he prayed that allowed for God's provision, the prayer that he prayed for rain to fall on the land. First we see in verse 36. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, Answer me, for this people may know you, that they may know you, O Lord, our God, and that you have turned their hearts back. There it is. He prayed the word of truth. God, you spoke this word. All I'm doing is what you told me to do. Lord, answer me today. Show the people that I have spoken the word of truth. And now, Lord, show them your awesome power, that their hearts may be turned back to you. Verse 37, we see that that their heart turned their hearts back in verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. So the fire falls from heaven. And not only does it burn up the, the sacrifice, but it took the altar with it, all of it, everything that he had just drenched in water. Fire from heaven fell and consumed all of this. Verse 39. When all the people saw it, look at their response. They fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let none of them escape. Not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Now what a, what a sight this is, right? I mean, what, a, what an incredible thing that's happening. All of it. First of all, that Elijah prays and fire falls and consumes the sacrifice. The sacrifice, by the way, was not just, you know, a a small sacrifice. The, The sacrifice was a bull. They chose two bulls and sacrificed one on the altar of the prophets of Baal and one on the altar of God. And fire fell and consumed not only the sacrifice, but the altar that was soaked in water with it. And the people, their their response was, the Lord is God. The Lord he is God. The prophet Elijah said, don't let any of the prophets of Baal escape. And he took them to the brook Kishon, and he had them them executed there. I mean, he slaughtered them, it says. So when we see his public prayer, two important points that we see. First of all, publicly, he prayed for God's power to be seen. God, would you show your power today? 
God, would you reveal your power so that people might know that you are God and that you have spoken this word? When I think about our prayers today and the way that we pray, so much of the time, to our own discredit, our prayers are so selfish. God, give me this. God, give me that. God, do this for me. God, do that for me, right? It's as if we treat much of the time God like a cosmic vending machine. Lord, I'm going to put in a little bit of prayer, and I'm just going to ask you to give me what I want. But Elijah's prayer was not a prayer for God, give me this, or God, give me that. Elijah's prayer was, God, show your power. And I wonder what it would be like if the people of God today would stop praying for their best life now and all the things that we want and all the selfish, you know, wants of our hearts. And instead, we would pray, God, would you show your power? Understanding that if God were really to answer that prayer and show his power, it may not be for us to get all the riches and all the wealth and all the, all the material wants and things that we may desire it may mean that we have to suffer a little bit. It may mean that we, get, uh, that we have to get uncomfortable. It may mean that we have to have the, the role of a prophet speaking the word of truth, that we're not popular, that we have to stand even in the midst of difficulty, that we have to get a spine and a backbone and stand up for what's right and do what's right, even if others around us uh, decry what we may be doing. I mean, it may be that we have to go through some things in order to boldly proclaim the word of truth. But I wonder how it would change things in our nation if the people of God would make it their prayer first and foremost. God, show your power. Let me take it a step further. Let's bring it closer to home. More than just the people of God in our nation. I wonder what it would look like if the people of God at the First Baptist Church in Chickasha would really get serious about praying, God, would you show your power in our church? God, show your power in my family. God, show your power in my life. Lord, reveal your power in my Sunday school group. God, reveal your power in my student ministry. Lord, reveal your power in our choir. Lord, reveal your power in our small group. Lord, reveal your power in our Bible study group. What would it look like if the people of this church got on our knees and our face before God and said, God, show your power in us. In this place, in this sanctuary, in this gathering place, Spirit, would you fall? God, would you move in power? It was the prayer that Elijah prayed. Not, Lord, give me this. Lord, I want this. Lord, make this better. Lord, take care of this for me. God, show your power. Secondly, Elijah prayed this. He prayed for people's hearts to be turned. We saw that in verse 37, right? Show them, O Lord, that you are God, that I am your servant. And then he says, O Lord God, that you turn their hearts back do all of this, Lord. Answer me, I pray, that people's hearts might be turned back. Again, how different would that be for us if we would cry out to God for the hearts of people? If we would be intercessors standing in the gap, praying for people around us, lifting them up to God. And next week, the, the, the prayer that we're going to look at is Hannah's prayer. Hannah in 1 Samuel, who prayed for God to give her a child, and God opened her womb and gave her Samuel. And then in two weeks, we're going to look at Nehemiah. And that was a part of Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah was, he was the warrior builder. He, he was the, the, the prophet who also served as priest for his people. He was the one who stood in the gap, who worked with the trowel in one hand and the sword in the other. And a part of Nehemiah's prayer was, oh God, turn back the hearts of people to you.
He stood in the gap for people. He was a true intercessor. Well, what would it look like if we would take on that role, that ministry, praying for the hearts of people? God, whatever it might take in their life, would you win their heart? Lord, however you can use me, God, would you win their heart? How would it change your life if you woke each morning and as you rose from sleep and as you got ready for your day, if the thoughts rolling in your mind were, God, today, how can your power be seen in my life and how can I be used of you to turn hearts to Jesus? That was the prayer of Elijah, that he prayed publicly for everyone to hear atop Mount Carmel. And what did God do? He answered. And did he answer, right? He didn't just answer, he showed off in the way that he answered. It would have been enough if the, the offering there on the altar just sort of instantly caught fire, right? It would have been enough. In fact, I think it's almost silly, but actually there's been a, a lot of uh, literature written over the years about people trying to prove, doc, I'm talking about people writing their doctoral PhD dissertations, trying to prove that what happened was not fire that fell from heaven, but just because things were so dry and there was so much drought that there were just some sparks that day and the, the offering just kind of caught fire. It was almost like a spontaneous combustion, an accidental fire. And it would have been enough to prove that God was God if the offering had just burned up. But the offering didn't just burn up. The altar went with it, right? I mean, fire fell from heaven and consumed all of it. The word that is used here is translated in English, English that it licked it up. It licked up even the dust. I mean, the fire burned, it consumed everything. There was no denying. And how do we know? Because we see that people didn't just say, huh, imagine that. What did they say? These same people who minutes before were totally on Team Baal, all of a sudden are crying out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. People were instantly convinced that this was a sign that Yahweh was the true God and that Elijah was his prophet who spoke truth. The Lord, he is God. Fire consumed the offering, consumed the altar. It was a demonstration of God's power. And immediately we see that hearts are turned. You know what happens when God shows his power? Even today. This happened in the time of Elijah. But even today, when God's power is seen, hearts are turned to him. Oh, that God would work in us. That people might see the power of God. And their hearts would be turned back to him. But we don't just see Elijah's public prayer here. We see the effects of Elijah's private prayer as well. There's a well-known uh, author, well-known uh, professor and, and, and pastor whose name is Walter Kaiser. And Walter Kaiser, in writing about this particular, uh, this particular instance, said this. He says, what was seen in public that day was no doubt the product of a disciplined private life over a long period of time. And so what was seen that day on Mount Carmel was publicly what Elijah prayed for and what Elijah did. But what happened that day was the product of a disciplined private life over a long period of time. Elijah had the kind of relationship with God that he would hear the word of God, that he would obey the word of God, and that God would move in power. It's the, it's the power of his private prayer. In James chapter 5, we read about the 
power of Elijah's prayer. In James 5, it talks about how the, the, the power of a, of, a, of a righteous man's prayers, that there's power in the prayers of a righteous man. Powerful and effective, right, is what it says in James 5, 16. But then in James 5, 17 and 18, it talks about how Elijah was such a man. Elijah was a man who prayed for there to be no rain, and rain didn't fall. And then he prayed for rain, and rain fell. Even James, the brother of Jesus, uses Elijah as the example of what righteous person's prayers can do. And a righteous person is a product of what Kaiser calls a disciplined private life over a long period of time. What do we see in Elijah's private prayer? Let's keep reading in verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, the king, Go up, eat, and drink, for there is a sound of rushing rain. Now, at this point, there's no sound of rushing rain, right? There were no clouds in the sky. We'll see that in just a moment. But Elijah said to the king, Hey, Ahab, you better prepare yourself because storms are coming. Verse 42, Ahab went up to eat and drink. Ahab, amazingly enough, did what Elijah said. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. Now, when Elijah cried out, in front of the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. He did so publicly, and all the eyes were on him. But now he goes to the top of Mount Carmel again, and this time, this is private. This time he has only his, his servant with him, only his, his is maybe better for us to think of his assistant with him. And he bows himself to the earth on the top of Mount Carmel, the scene of this previous victory in front of all the the prophets of Baal and all the people watching. And he bows himself so that his head is between his knees and he prays, God, would you send rain? We read in verse 43, he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and he looked and he said, there's nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, A little cloud, like a man's hand, is rising from the sea. And he said, go up. Say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab, to the entrance of Jezreel. So the Spirit of the Lord was with Elijah, and Elijah took off running, and he ran ahead of Ahab, who was traveling by chariot. That even of itself is a small miracle, right? So that when Ahab arrives at Jezreel, Elijah's standing there at the gate. This guy was relentless. The king couldn't get away from him, right? But what happened was a product of Elijah's private prayer. It was the product of a righteous man, a man who loved God, a man who disciplined his life in private, a man who sought the Lord, a man who lived in obedience to the word of God, a man who stood for what was true even when it wasn't popular. And we see that when when such a man goes before God and cries, oh God, would you send rain? What happens? Well, the first time he didn't see anything and he kept praying. He was persistent in his prayer, wasn't he? And again, he prayed, nothing, seven times. And finally, he says, well, there's like a, there's maybe a little cloud about the size of a man's hand, right? And it's way out there. And Elijah says, that's it, that's enough. God's going to answer. 
And before we know it, we see the sky grew black and storms and rain fell. God answered Elijah's prayer. So what do we see in Elijah's private prayer life? We saw some lessons in his public prayer life. In his private prayer life, we see this. We see that Elijah prayed for God's purpose to prevail. It was the plan of God to send rain. Elijah knew that because God was the one who told him to pray for rain. Why did Elijah pray for no rain? Well, because the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, Elijah, I want you to pray for no rain and the rain will stop. And then when the time was right, Elijah prayed for rain. Why did Elijah pray for rain? Because God told him to. And so Elijah prayed for rain and he believed in faith that God would send rain. He prayed for God's purpose to prevail. Lord, whatever it is, I can imagine that Elijah probably thought to himself, really? Now? Okay, God. But nonetheless, he was doing what God told him to do. Elijah had seen some pretty incredible stuff happen in his day. Now, we don't even know all of it, but what we do know, go back to 1 Kings chapter 17, and there's two stories in particular. One is that Elijah went to live by a certain brook, and there God sent ravens to feed him. In the morning and in the evening, each day, God would send ravens to supply food for him. Now, you talk about a crazy man, a guy that talks to birds and gets his food from birds, probably would be thought of as a crazy man, and yet Elijah was such a man. Not only that, God told Elijah to go to this widow's house. And there at the widow's house, he said, I'll provide for you. And so Elijah obeyed and went to the house of the widow. And her son, who was dead, Elijah prayed over him. He spread himself out and prayed over him three times. And the boy came back to life. And the woman made food for Elijah. And as Elijah said, you're not going to run out. As long as there's famine in the land, your source of food, your supplies will never run short. She didn't have to go to the grocery store anymore because Elijah prayed for there to be food in the cupboard and there was always food. This guy had seen some incredible things happen. And nonetheless, when we see him atop Mount Carmel, he doesn't see instant results, does he? He prayed, but what happened? Nothing at first. So he prayed some more. What happened? Nothing. So he prayed some more. Seven times this happens. Elijah was persistent in prayer because he believed that God was going to do what God said he was going to do. He prayed for God's purpose, and then he waited for God to reveal his plan, for God to do what he said he was going to do. And again, in our lives, in your life, Think about how differently it would be if you prayed for God's purpose to prevail and then you waited on him to do it. Because here's what happens a lot of the time. We pray, God, would you do this? Would you make your purposes prevail? And then when, when the Lord doesn't answer the first time, we give up and we try to do it ourselves. We move on or we try to figure, well, clearly God's not going to do this, so I better do it for him. And we try on our own. And Elijah was persistent in prayer. And when things didn't happen at first, what did he do? He kept praying. And when things didn't happen the second time, what did he do? He kept praying. And he kept praying. And he kept praying. And he prayed until God did what God said he was going to do. He prayed for God's purpose to prevail. But not only that, this was really the ultimate plan in God's purpose, was to supply the people's needs. And so Elijah prayed for God's provision to supply. Remember, Baal was the God of the thunder, the God of the rain, the God of the storm, the fertility of the land. 
The reason why God told Elijah to pray for no rain in the first place was to prove that Baal was no God at all, to prove that Baal was a false God. It was nothing more than than the creation of someone's imagination. Baal was powerless because Baal was nothing more than a myth, a fairy tale. And God sent famine in the land to prove that he was the one who sent the rain to people. That he was the one who had the power to supply the needs of his people. We're not talking about just any people. We're talking about the children of Israel. We're talking about the chosen covenant people of God who had turned their hearts to the things of the world, wanting what everyone else wanted. Sound familiar? Seeking after what the rest of the world desired instead of looking to God for provision, looking to God for his purpose and his plan. We see that so much in the church today. Oh, how things would be different if the people of God would pray for God's power to be seen, pray for hearts to be turned, pray for God's purpose and wait on him. And if we would pray for God's provision to supply our needs, rather than trying to do it ourselves, rather than trying to do it better than what God has chosen to do it, thinking that, well, that's not good enough. If we would rest in the Lord's goodness, rest in his provision, trust in him, and his power to provide. I told you that the display of God's power leads to the conversion of hearts, but I also believe that when God's purpose prevails, our needs are perfectly met. When God's perfect prevails, our needs are perfectly met, and nowhere is that more clearly seen than the cross of Christ. Elijah prayed for rain, and rain fell, and people's needs were met. When we pray for and we ask for God to do his work and do his purpose, he will meet our needs. And nowhere is that more clearly seen than the cross of Christ. Because on the cross of Christ, God's purpose, his plan, was that Jesus would be crushed, that he would be broken, that he would be offered up as a sacrifice so that you and I might be redeemed, that we might be set free from our sins, transformed by his sacrifice, by his power to redeem us. God's purpose was to sacrifice Jesus to pay the price for our sin. When God's purpose prevails, our needs are perfectly met. Today, when you think about these lessons, when you think about the lessons of Elijah's prayer life, his public prayer life, his private prayer life, I hope that you'll be challenged to pray for God's power, to pray for hearts to turn, to pray for God's purpose to be done, his work to be seen, his power to be known, and his purposes prevail. But let's not forget that ultimately when we pray for God's power to be revealed and hearts to be turned, we're praying that people would come to Jesus. When we pray that God's purpose would be done and his plans would prevail, we're praying that people would come to Christ. What we're praying is that people would know Jesus. And so today, may we feel that burden to pray for Jesus, to turn hearts and lives, to show his power and his authority, to reveal his purpose and his perfect timing. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation, a time of response. And as we pray in this time of invitation, today maybe God's spoken to your heart and he said, hey, it's time for you to, to, to change your prayer life. It's time for your prayer life to look more like the prayer life of Elijah. 
I want you to pray for my power to be seen. I want you to pray for hearts to turn. God is saying, I want you to pray that, that my purposes would pre- prevail and that people would see how I've provided richly for their every need in Jesus. If that's the case, then I, I want to challenge you during our invitation today that you would just come and you would kneel here at the steps of the stage as an altar before God and that you would just lift your cries to him, that you would offer your prayers to him. And it's the same as Elijah prayed privately. You would pray. Now listen, this is the beginning, hopefully not the end. Hopefully this isn't going to be a one-time thing. You come and kneel and pray and you feel like, okay, well, good, I did my job. No, no. What we saw in Elijah's life was the product of, of a private life lived out of discipline over a long period of time. We've got to do the same. But it begins today with us responding in obedience. Maybe you're here today thinking to yourself now, if I'm trying to to guess what where, maybe where some people's thoughts are, you're, you're thinking to yourself, you know, I, I'm not sure that I've ever really trusted in Jesus the way that he's talking about. I'm not, I'm not sure that I've ever really prayed to Jesus or looked to Jesus as the, the answer to my needs the way that he's talking about. If that's you, then I want to challenge you during the same invitation as we sing a song and we stand together, you would come and talk to me, talk to Brad, talk to us about, about surrendering your life to Christ. We would love to walk you through a simple prayer of faith where you could surrender your life to Christ. You could respond to him today by faith, trusting that he truly is the answer to every need, that God has richly given you everything when he gave you Jesus and that he's enough. And if you're ready to surrender your life to him today, I pray that you'll respond by faith during our invitation. Even now as we prepare for that, would you join me in a word of prayer and, and then we'll stand together, sing the song of invitation as we do. The altars will be open. Our staff will be here at the front ready to receive you this morning. Lord, would you move in spirit and in power in our midst the way that you moved atop Mount Carmel on that day. God, would you do a work in us like the work that you had done in Elijah We understand that what we saw publicly, what was seen publicly that day, was a product of a private life of discipline lived out over a long period of time. Lord, help us to discipline our lives in private before you. Help us to walk in integrity before you. Help us to live lives of obedience to you. That your power might be demonstrated in us. That we would see your movement today, that hearts might be turned to Jesus. Even now, God, be exalted. Even now, move in power. Holy Spirit, even now, stir our hearts to obedience, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together this morning. Let's sing this song of invitation as we do. Our altars are open. Our staff are here at the front ready to receive you. Would you come now as we sing?